Re is a podcast brought to you by New Heights Church, a church located in Mission, BC, focused on being church with mission in mind. We are your hosts, Jessica Stefik and Greg Elford. And this is the Re podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. That's why you need to take responsibility for the sins of society. You need to feel the pain of the shame to have the energy to actually change anything. Today, the re-podcast is thrilled to have Ray Aldred as our guest. We talk together about the Canadian story, different ways to introduce ourselves, factors in reconciliation, and how Indigenous brothers and sisters and those who Ray calls Canada's newcomers can be church together. The re-podcast acknowledges that we gather live, play, and worship on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Stolo First Nation. Stolo means the people of the river who tended this land for thousands of years. We strive to respect the land that we now share. Welcome, Ray. We are so glad you're here with us today. And uh, actually, we're going to have Jess read a little bit of a bio about you and then tell us, we'd be curious to see if that's the way you would introduce yourself. It's off the website, the place that you work. So we'd love to hear if you have any tweaks. So Reverend Dr. Ray Aldred is currently serving as the Interim Academic Dean and Director of the Indigenous Studies Program at Vancouver School of Theology. He's ordained with the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Canada and is status Cree from Swan River Band Treaty 8. Ray is a husband, father, and grandfather who resides with his wife in Richmond, British Columbia. So um, we, we really would just like to ask you to tell us who you are and uh, see how you would answer that question, not necessarily on a website. Uh, well, my mother was born on the banks of the Lesser Slave Lake in 1937 in a tent and uh, she grew up there and eventually through circumstances ended up in Grand Prairie, Alberta and that's where she met my father and I was born there and I, I met a girl who was born near there and we got married. We actually met when we were 15 and uh, I'm, we've been married for 40, 41 years now, and uh, we have four adult children. One of them is a grade five school teacher, lives near us. Another one is living in Montreal, working on a PhD thesis at McGill, and another one is working in Grand Prairie as a employment counselor sort of person. And Youngest son works in the oil industry, and I have five grandchildren. And and I have been teaching theology for the last few years. And the thing about the way that Indigenous people introduce themselves, you always start off with where you're from, what part of the country, who your relatives are. The bio that you read, that's, that's how... It's how settler people introduce themselves. They always start with what they do. Probably because mainstream society, when the, in modern society, draw significance from the things that we do, whereas Indigenous people draw significance from our relatives, from who we're related to. And... Uh, and so that's kind of a difference in the way that people, you know, so who you, who are you related to? Comes in handy too. I remember one time I was in a meeting and there was some tension between the two groups. We were working on a memorandum of understanding between some indigenous educators and some non-indigenous educators. And there was tension in the room. And so because I learned from my elders about the first thing that we did is we just went around the table and we introduced ourselves that way. We said, you know, who our children were and our grandchildren and how. And by the time that we finished the circle, I think we realized each other's humanity. And uh, a lot of the tension was gone. 
And we solved a lot of these problems that we'd argued about for a couple of days fairly quickly. So. Well, I'm, I'm curious in the way that um, I introduce myself or if we were meeting, if it's patronizing for me to sort of follow suit or if that's something that's, that's appreciated, um, how, how, do you, how would you suggest that those of us that are kind of interfacing with our own indigenous community here in mission, should we ask sort of for permission or guidance or just kind of follow suit with what's modeled? Well, I think I'd probably introduce myself the way that I think it's important. At least we'd know who you are. Besides, if, you're, if you have any Mennonite ancestry, you'd talk about your relatives first anyways, wouldn't you? I, mean, I don't. Rural people, agrarian communities, you know, that tend to also talk about their relatives and relationship. And so maybe it's just being close to the land. That's what causes that. I would love to say that I am a husband um, to my wife, Erin, who I love more than anyone in the world. Um, the close second are my three little beauties. Uh, Obi, Edie, and Rudy's our youngest. They're nine six and two uh so our son is nine our daughter is six and then our our latest addition little guy he's um he's a special one where he's got uh down syndrome and he has been teaching us more than we're teaching him it feels like so far but it's just been the biggest privilege in my life to be a dad and it makes me think through the way my dad was my dad and they're from toronto my parents, well, my mom's American, but um, my dad went to school in the States, met my mom, imported her is how he likes to describe it. And then uh, I followed suit and married an American and brought her out of the Midwest uh, American experience to Canada. So we have that in common in my family. It's kind of a, a through line of our story. Um, I come from Edmonton, Alberta. So that's where most of my family is. I come from a family of four daughters. So that created a whole new dynamic that was fun and emotional and dramatic and awesome. And so that's where I'm coming from. I'm married to my uh, junior high crush, who I met when I was 12. And now we've relocated to uh, the Fraser Valley, where we've had to create a new family but been very blessed to find um, a family not related to us, but one that takes care of us and loves us, though we are away from our blood relatives. So then, um, Ray, to get into some of these questions, this is called the re-podcast. Um, so every topic that we approach, we, we like to kind of approach it with a new mindset. So we've asked you to kind of give us a reword, something that will kind of prepare our hearts and give us a posture um, that we can receive what you will be talking about today. So do you have a reword for us? Sure. June, in June the 10th, I think it was June 10th, 2008. I think it was 2008. It might have been 2009. I met with Chuck Strahl, who then was the Minister of Indigenous and Northern Affairs in Ottawa, like just really quickly. And that morning, there was a bunch of us. It wasn't just me. It makes me sound so important, but I wasn't that important. I was the co-chair of a committee that was hosted or put on by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. And we were in Ottawa and it was National Reconciliation Day. It was a year after the apology from Stephen Harper and the other leaders of the parties in Canadian politics for the residential school. And that morning I'd asked, uh, I phoned Adrian, I talked to Adrian Jacobs, maybe it was the day before because he couldn't be at the meeting, but I asked him, what should we ask those guys? or say to Chuck Strahl, because we were going to meet with him just for a few minutes. And he said to me, he said, ask them what non-assimilationist policies look like, because they'd apologized for the assimilationist policy of the residential school. So he said, ask them what non-assimilationist policies look like. 
I said, okay. So when I met him, I Chuck Strahl, because I was sort of this one of the spokespeople, I, I said to him, so what does non-assimilationist policies look like? I said, and then I added this, and this is where the word comes from. And I added this, what does repentance look like for Canada? What does repentance look like for Canada? So there's your word, repentance. Mm. What does it look like for Canada? Mm. Yeah. Because it has such a history of genocide against Indigenous people. And uh, so what does it look like to walk in repentance? I think uh, it would be wonderful if you would open that up a little bit for us as far as like genocide and help helping us kind of tell the story, or we're curious even how you help people realize what needs reconciling, what attitudes are people have brought to the table that they might not even be aware of, they carry as sort of blind spots. How do you help people understand what's really at stake here? Well, at another meeting, uh, actually, you know, uh, I'll tell you another story. So I like, you know, leading up to this conversation, we were talking earlier and I shared that I lived in Regina, Saskatchewan from 1988 to 2005. And my three, my three youngest kids went to Winston Knoll Collegiate, which is one of the high schools. And, and I used to, I kind of believe in public education. So I used to, you know, if they needed I, I happened to have a teepee, a 15 foot, uh, so what's that, about five meter high teepee and poles. And I used to say, hey, if you want me to come and uh, I'll help your class can come and we'll put up this teepee and I'll tell stories. So we do that, you know, we do the teepee raising ceremony and, and then tell some stories. And on another occasion, they wanted me to speak about anti-racism and rally and uh, at an anti-racism rally and I did. And on another occasion, they asked me into a social studies class, grade 11 social studies class. They were uh, watching the American civil rights, they were, they were studying the American civil rights movement. And uh, one of the questions, so I came in and talked about some of the stuff that I'd faced as a kid, racism. And, mm-hmm. and then they, one of the, I remember one of the young, ladies or young women in the class asked so what does uh well how can people do those things because they'd watched films and videos about some of the violence that happened directed towards african-american people and uh one of the students said how could how can how could they do that how could they do that and so i I walked them through this exercise i said uh, just off the top of your head i said First words that come into your mind, I said, give me all the words that come into your mind when you think about people with disabilities or handicapped people. I didn't even say handicapped, just people with disabilities. And so they gave this whole list of words like infirm, sick, uh, you know, different kinds of words. And then I went, we went through all the words and I, every one of the words I said to them, is this a positive word or a negative word? You know, infirm, is that a positive word? or negative word, and they said negative. Sick, is that a positive word or a negative word? Well, that's negative. Uh, handicapped, is that a positive word or a negative word? It's negative. So their whole list of words were all negative. So I said, and then, so I walked them through, I said, so do you have a primarily positive attitude towards people with disability or a primarily a negative attitude? And they said, uh, well, we have a negative attitude because that's the words that we think about people with disabilities. I said, okay. I said, have you ever, have you ever, uh, I said, so if it's Friday night, you're going down to the SEV, which is what they used to call 7-Eleven in Regina and in Moose Jaw too, I bet. If you're you're going down to 7, you're going to get a big gulp and a bag of chips and then watch a movie. I said, are you going to do that with a person you have a positive attitude about or a person you have a negative attitude? And they said, well, someone we have a positive attitude. So I said, you would never watch a movie with a person with disability. And they said, no, probably not. I said, okay. I said, have any of you ever parked in, 
no. I said, have any of you ever parked in a disabled parking spot or called, referred to one of the special education students here as a SPED, which is a derogatory term they used. And they all said, yes, we've all done that. I said, well then, I said, do you, done violence to these people and you didn't even know you were racist towards them. Mm. Another question I asked them, I said, do you have anything to offer people with disabilities? And they said, oh yeah. And I said, do they have anything to offer you? And that was the thing that none of them could think of what a disabled person had to offer them. And so I said, well, you're paternalistic at best and you're racist at worst. And that's how a lot of Canadian people are. They look down at Indigenous people as a problem to be solved. And they could then, if you think that way, then it's just a little step to think, you know, if they were gone, I wouldn't even miss them because they need my help, but I don't need their help. So that's racism. The Canadian government had a policy that, well, and it was came out in many of their leaders, they looked at Indigenous people as children. And these were adults. And they looked at, it's always looking down at another people and thinking that you have to fix stuff for them because they don't know how to do it themselves. It's not, that's paternalism. And it describes a lot of alliances that, dominant society in Canada has had with Indigenous people. It's been a paternalistic sort of relationship. It's the way that some churches are in relationship with uh, the two, the majority world churches. So, no, I appreciate the, the clarifier and was thinking about um, what it's like to, to be on the receiving end of that. And I think that example is so helpful and kind of relates to where I'm at in life personally with my son and what we're bracing ourselves for. As we dig in a little more and feel like I almost need a per- permission to even ask, but like to, to know what that's like to be a person that's the victim of that. And I hope that's the right use of the word. Like that's how I see it. Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of demeaning. I mean, I noticed it when I moved to Regina because maybe because I grew up in Grand Prairie and there's racists in Grand Prairie, don't get me wrong, but because it was a small community, there was only 10,000 people there. I lived outside of town, but there was only 10,000 people in Grand Prairie. So, and you know, I had relatives there and everybody kind of knew my father and he was a shift foreman at a plywood mill. So, you know, it was, so stuff happened. I never got the feeling that anybody was, looking down on me except maybe school teachers uh, but then uh, but when I moved to Regina you know because all of those relationships weren't there boy it became pretty evident that people looked down on me because of the color of my skin and they treated you that way like you were not intelligent they speak louder to you my son who's my son has got muscular dystrophy and uh, that's what I have always noticed with him you know it's good that you drew thought about that because people are often paternalistic towards people with disabilities and because he was in a you know because he had trouble walking you'd say to someone if he if it happened to come up and people found out that he had muscular dystrophy they'd start to talk louder like somehow if he, he couldn't hear them or understand or something like and that was the same experience people just assumed that they had to tell me what to do or in other settings, I've seen it where uh, pastors or people who were actually from, uh, you know, the United States up in Canada being missionaries, they somehow thought that I was childlike and they would tell me, you know, they, and they end up telling you what to do. They don't even think about it. They just do it. They just, and that's paternalism. It makes you feel like, well, it, it doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy. Oh, I could imagine some rage if I was, if when, you know, when I've felt that way, like it'd be hard not to, not to feel some pretty strong feelings. Yeah. So most of the time I, you just talk about it. 
with people. I mean, that's what I used to do. It's just, I meet with them. I said, you know, I, I really don't, I got a dad. I don't need another one. So <laughs> that's a good answer. Let's just like change. Let's just change how we're doing this. Okay. Another way that people do that towards indigenous people that I've seen, because I was doing most of my ministry in um, Regina is not a huge city, but I lived in Winnipeg for a couple of years too. Been to Edmonton a few times. And just the, oftentimes the dominant, dominant group, dominant culture churches think that all, all indigenous people need to do is learn some new tools like strategic planning or something. I said, are you serious? I remember one time teaching uh, at a family camp, indigenous family camp. And, you know, I had all this stuff. I was young and I had all these things about, you know, from social learning, teaching people how to manage things and these coping skills stuff. And then suddenly it recurred to me that there was a single mom. Well, she wasn't a single mom, but her, her, her husband, I think, was doing, was in and out of jail a little bit. And uh, she had six or seven kids. And, you know, some of them were older teenagers. And I'm going, it suddenly occurred to me, this woman knows more about living and life and planning than I'm ever going to know. Like, what am I doing strategic planning really this woman is surviving and she's got seven kids and she doesn't have enough money and yet somehow she's holding this thing together and i'm sitting there as a young minister actually thinking i could tell her and i just thought oh good grief but but i just found that's how the dominant church treats indigenous people they kind of assume that people don't I don't know if they assume people don't know how to deal with their money or I tell you, people who don't have a lot know how to deal with their money better than people who have. Well, I shouldn't say that because rich people get rich because they're cheap. So how do you think about having conversations like that? If, if those are the tools you've been modeled and you've grown up with, what do you think a shift away from that? Like how, how does that actually happen in a person? I think that we shift sort of the it goes back to the to the to the way we talked about how indigenous people introduce themselves it's about relationship mm. let's connect on a relationship first level first and then and then we'll figure out how we can do something together unless there's a specific problem that everybody knows about that we can join around solving right away but even in that a good community development approaches to make sure everybody in the room has this you know what what do we feel as a group would be a good way to move forward like like if there's a flood say there's an imminent flood on the fraser river somewhere well everybody all the different communities doesn't matter what ethnic ethnicity or which group we'll come together and we'll fill sandbags and we'll you know everybody will just fall into to working on that won't they like i just think even in covid on one level with the covid19 thing we all decided as a community everybody's saying okay we got to figure this out we got to work together you know there's a shared solidarity that's a good approach if you can find a task that we're all focused on if it's trying to uh, suicide prevention missing murdered indigenous women you know, different things that people are struggling with as a society, we can all come together and realize we all have something to offer. We all need something from somebody else. And then we can work together. That's a better approach than thinking you have everything and the other people have nothing. You know, that's just a poor, a poor approach to ministry. Some ministers struggle in ministry because they never learn how to rely on their, like they're in partnership. We're in partnership, so stop thinking you have everything. You don't. Mm. You need we need people. We need one another. So that's kind of that's how I try to do ministry and how I try to function in society. Yeah. So along those lines, that work of kind of collaboration, I'd love to hear you talk about maybe the roles or the postures that kind of the different groups that are involved bring to this conversation of 
both repentance and reconciliation. So I'm wondering about what that looks like for a church, what that looks like for individual settlers. What does that look like for indigenous folks that are either part of the church or not? How would you, I guess, describe that dynamic? What does each bring? Okay. Well, I think that uh, we need to understand that when I say repentance and using it in the theological sense, the biblical sense, the idea is to turn back to relationship and to life. That's what repentance is. You're kind of pursuing some individualistic sort of approach that's leading to death and uh and then turning back to to life to relationships so turning back towards your neighbor turning back towards the covenant in the in the case of the, the hebrew people turning back towards your family trying to heal those relationships turning back towards the land and uh i think if we make relationships primary so seek to be seek to be proper related i think that's part of what everyone needs to be thinking about i just find more resources within indigenous uh in the in the near past in the, among the relationships there's some the treaty the historic treaty process as seen by indigenous people because uh you know, there's no doubt that non-Indigenous people, politicians, were looking at it as a way to take over land and take away rights from Indigenous people. But Indigenous people themselves were seeking to be... And this is not completely foreign. A friend of mine is a... or an acquaintance of mine. Uh, we were We knew each other well enough that if we saw each other in the airport, we might have a cup of coffee together and at one time he was doing business in japan and when you're doing business there you said you have it's got to be about relationship first first you make relationship then you talk about business and he said that's what he was trying to that's what canada needs that's what you got to learn when you when we're working with indigenous mm -hmm. people first you make relationship then you worry about the business then you worry about the business. So then first you got to make relationships. So protocol is very important. So that's why we say that we are on the unceded territory of mm. the Musqueam Coast Salish and Tsleil-Waututh people. Even as we do this podcast, we're on someone else's territory. Mm. So that's why we say that because it's protocol is honors the, it, it honors the other person there and produces mm. respect. And so uh, one of the things that the church has to offer is that, well, we follow Christ. Christ is all about love. How can that not be a good message for everybody? I mean, and, uh, and so that's, that's a value that we have. And I think most churches are trying to do activities and aim at things that produce uh, strong families so that's another positive thing and churches also have especially you know they have the ability to disseminate information so tell good stories and get out good information and counter sort of negative uh, stuff that's in the media those kinds of things uh, and individual people newcomers I call them newcomers I suppose settlers is I just call them newcomers. I mean, when you think about it, there's that archaeological dig that happened along the West Coast. And there's been Indigenous people in this country since, you know, this, this dates back to 15,000 years ago. So to me, anybody who's only been here 500 years, they're a newcomer. So all the newcomers, the resources that all the things that you have that are the heart language are valuable. They are like, you know, the music, the, the arts, and the way that, and the way that bureaucracy works. I mean, English, the English, the 
gift of bureaucracy. No, I'm kidding. That's a joke. And, uh, <laughs> but on an indi individual level, indigenous, uh, non-indigenous folks, if, uh, if they have resources, I mean, it always takes resources. Some people say, well, we've given enough, you know, money isn't going to solve the problem. Money is not going to solve the problem, but money is part of the solution. So you're not going to solve the problem without money. So mm -hmm. if if you're in a if you're better financially able to contribute towards something, then that's that's a positive thing. Mm -hmm. And also just being willing to, you know, the volunteerism, it's a value in non-indigenous culture, you know, people willing to help out do things. Those are all good things. Mm -hmm. And wanting to form, I think people want some of the same things, like a loving society, an intimate society, a society where people feel welcome. And, uh, but one of the things that has to happen is, uh, particularly for the church, you need to take responsibility for the negative things that happen. Just stop, stop trying to hide them and say that, argue that you're not guilty or that just seems foolish. It, it, so it's better just to take responsibility and say, okay, let's fix it. Let's fix it. Let's take responsibility. This stuff happened and it's not good. So let's fix it. Let's fix it. Let's come up with positive work some positive programs and positive things. What indigenous people bring is that they see things and everybody brings their unique perspective, but uh, indigenous folks have suffered enough trauma that they not blinded by certain things uh, and able to better see. And that, that's not just indigenous people. Now, when I was, at one time my wife and I were not we were not making a lot of money and uh, our community was also made up of people who didn't have a lot yet that community understand understood how to come together and everybody help one another and indigenous people understand that how community works and for people who are come from other countries, have lost connection with the land and with their extended family, and they're just very individual. You need people like Indigenous people to learn how community works. And so we have one another something to offer. So we should work together. But to do that, you have to come up with a, a narrative a story that everybody can buy into. And that's a challenge. That's what we're trying to do right now, isn't it? We're trying to make another narrative, another story about how we came together and produce something positive. There's been glimpses of that in the past. and I guess we could tell those stories. So that's how I think about this thing, about turning back towards one another. We can't go it alone. Uh, well, I think that, well, the, you know, this is sort of self-serving, so I'll use it. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. 1980, in 1984, the Vancouver School of Theology started a Indigenous Studies program at the request of practitioners from the Native of Native Ministries Consortium. There were a bunch of practitioners, people who were doing work, trying to bring together indigenous spirituality and the Christian faith. And it was people from both groups. It was, it was uh, newcomers and, and, the, and the First Nations and the Métis and the Inuit. And they came together and they started a program, which I, I'm directing now, but it was all aimed at helping facilitate Indigenous people getting a Master of Divinity degree in an Indigenous way. So it was fully accredited mm -hmm. program. It was the same Master of Divinity that non-Indigenous ministers earned, and they facilitated the making of that. And in that process, both were changed. The Vancouver School of Theology was changed, and 
I think the indigenous church grew and was changed as well. So that's a positive thing. I thought of another one mm -hmm. though, like one that I heard that's used in the plains because we, there's a sweetgrass ceremony and when a braid of sweetgrass is you take three strands of sweetgrass and you braid them into a braid and then you pray with it, you burn it and you pray with it. And one strand, so they, they did that uh, among the Lakota, there's a ceremony called the making relative ceremony. And in it, you burn sweetgrass. You rehearse symbolically the wrongs that are between the two groups. So if there's this historical enmity that existed between the two groups, there's symbolic rehearsal of that. Some little, uh, maybe it's an item or something that symbolizes this historic enmity. And then they burn the sweet grass and they pray. And they're saying that they're making peace, that they're making relatives. They're becoming relatives. When the historic treaty process happened in the prairies, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, a little bit of Ontario, but Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, a little bit of British Columbia, the historic pro treaty process, that sweet grass braid, one strand represents the newcomers. One strand represents the First Nations, and one strand represents the Creator. Mm -hmm. And we promised, we made like a covenant, the covenant because the Creator was present. We promised to live like relatives, and the Creator would hold us to it. And that's what we're trying to do. And that, and that's to be renewed, and it's to be renewed every year. Mm -hmm. And so the treaty process is renewed in the treaty nations every year where there's somewhere near where the historic treaties were signed. They have this, they, they symbolically reenact this treaty process. The, the Mountie, some of them, the, the Mountie shows up in their red surge dress uniform and they have a pile of $5 bills and every indigenous person gets a new one $5 bill. It's a paltry amount and it's symbolic that this is a treaty. We follow, we promise to live like relatives. To me, that's what we're trying to do in Canada. And Canadians, their repentance is to turn back to this. Canada exists because of the goodwill of Indigenous people. Canada exists because of the treaties. Canada is a treaty nation. And so then non-Indigenous people settlers, newcomers, need to turn back to that relationship and realize that that's the legitimation of their presence here in Canada. That's their relationship to the land. They have a legitimate relationship to the land through their relationship with Indigenous people. I think that's a positive thing. Indigenous people have no interest in making everybody feel like they don't belong or telling people to leave. That's not what we're about. Mm -hmm. Our goal is harmony, that there'd be harmony in our communities and on the land. And we're responsible for that because we were put here by the creator to maintain harmony. So. I really like that picture because sometimes frankly you think about like what what does reconciled look like like is that even a potential that we could ever reach um and i like the idea of framing it as harmony that there isn't sort of a redistribution of things or something that's realistic but it's more of an attitudinal kind of shift i'm wondering how do you have a conversation where you express the fact that you're aware that you're on the side that is guilty and needs to uh, repent for for whatever what what you mean by that. How do you express that without being patronizing, or um, especially when somebody like we're, we have relationship and it's never been something that's that, that you get the sense is is a topic they want to uh, my friend might want to broach. How do I like? What do we do one-on-one -on -one in those situations? You get what I'm asking? It's kind of like, uh, well, one of the things, the easiest probably thing that I can think of is that 
if you hear someone else, you know, that's also your friend talking foolishly, then tell them, you know, you're being foolish and that's a lot more complex problem than you're making it out to be. I'm not sure that kind of talk helps anybody. We're better than that, aren't we? Because I have a friend that I said that to recently. I just said, we don't talk that way about people. We know better than that. You know, and I'm close enough to that person that I could say that. And they acknowledge, they say, yeah, okay, you're right. Yeah. I mean, that's one way you just don't let people say stupid things and, and, and call them on it. Just say, you know, that's an asinine thing and you should know better. Straighten out. If you, if you have that kind of relationship, I have a relationship with some guys that I, I could say that too. And so I do. And then, uh, oh, the other one is like, if you have an opportunity and you, and there's no one there, you could advocate for a better deal for indigenous people on certain issues, like take, find out what indigenous values are on a situation and make those your values and work that through in your mind, like a community planning or curriculum meetings and those kinds of things. And that way, you know, you're not, if you have the opportunity to bring in a friend who can speak to this, that's one thing, but you know, most of us are overworked by that. But uh, if you could speak up, choose that, try to be an advocate, try to help move the conversation along. That's kind of how I see it. I don't know that if you're with your friends and that doesn't come up, well, then it doesn't come up. Yeah. But if, if you want to create a place where you talk about it, then, I mean, I've always, when I do, I've done Bible studies. I, I'm a strong proponent in thinking about, like, we do a thing called gospel-based discipleship where we read the gospel reading for the day from the lectionary, and then we just talk about it, three questions. What are the words and images that come to your mind? We read it again, then we say, uh, what do you think God's telling us, saying to us? And then we read it again, we say, what do you think this is calling us to do? And uh, so... I'm a big proponent of that to see how what we're going through fits into the gospel story. And then I also have done some groups where we talk about what's really going on inside, you know, like, so I've learned how to talk about what is happening in me, you know, and, and bring that up if something triggers me, but I don't try to, I don't try to tell other people how they should feel. I can only talk about how it makes me feel. That's helpful. I've heard you say in another place that you tell the truth. And I, yeah, I appreciate that. Well, and that's part of what happens in, in reconciliation. The, the model that's helped me the most is I was actually listening to a guy named uh, Pierre Allard, who used to be the head of the chaplains in Corrections Canada. And he said that restorative justice is an attempt at reconciliation. It's an attempt at reconciliation. That's what we're doing in Canada. We're attempting reconciliation. Some places will be successful. Others, it'll take longer. And in an attempted reconciliation, use the restorative justice model, there's three movements. One, you have to tell the truth. I think that we've gone through a period where we were telling the truth and we need to continue to do that. That means to talk about what really happened. That's why inquiries into missing and murdered indigenous women, inquiries into sort of police violence and societal violence. And those things help us to tell the truth. And then, but the second movement is you have to really listen. When people tell the truth, you got to really listen. And that means listen with your whole being, not like the husband who says, or the spouse who says, oh yeah, I heard you. I heard what you said. And then can parrot back the words, but they haven't heard with their heart. They haven't heard the emotion that was the person was expressing. So you got to listen. And the reason you have to listen is you need, and that's why a person... 
that's why you need to take responsibility for the sins of society. You need to feel the pain of the shame to have the energy to actually change anything. I mean, that's when shame is working properly. It's not illegitimate shame. Illegitimate shame doesn't help anybody because it doesn't, you just feel bad for something that it's someone else's fault. But when it's legitimate shame, when we're responsible for it, then you can use the energy from that shame, the emotional energy to actually change and do something positive. And that's the third step is to, to uh, come up with a shared plan. It's got to be a shared plan, though, gotta, so that you can come up with a legitimate shared plan instead of just trying to placate some people to do away with the symptom. The violence is a symptom of a bigger problem. And instead of, you know, you should work at the real problem. Yes, you need to try to stop the violence. That doesn't help anything, but you need to work at the real issues. So that's, so that, so I always think, so then everything that I see going on in churches and society, I think, where does this fit? Is this telling the truth? Is this listening? Or is this coming up with a shared plan? And that helps me evaluate what's going on. Those are helpful, like lenses to look through. Appreciate that. I think I would love, I'd love to hear you talk about kind of um, the indigenous and Jesus ways, how those have come together for you. What has been meaningful about your indigenous background, um, kind of influencing your perspective and understanding of Jesus and even vice versa. How do those come together for you? Well, I think that uh, a couple ways. Uh, first of all, that you know, I'm I'm your typical. I'm assuming I'm your typical guy who grew up and has some deep deep issues about trust and love, and and those have translated because didn't you know some wounds from the past you know, didn't have, uh, didn't always try to resolve those things in healthy ways. So using drugs and alcohol to try to resolve those issues. Jesus, for me, sort of, for him, when I had a deeply moving religious experience when I was 19, he, I realized that he loved me and that changed my life embracing his love but I still sort of had a lot of self-hatred because I was indigenous and part of my growth and process was to come to the place that I uh, and one and another paper I wrote I said I repented of trying to reject my own identity and I embraced the love of God for who I was and that he had made me indigenous. And I, and that helped me. And in the process of learning to be a minister, I, at one point I began to read scripture with indigenous eyes because scripture really is in one sense, it's one large story. It's a story of God revealing himself to human beings and, and, Indigenous people, my Indigenous ancestors understand how story works and all those tools that I had just kind of ignored and trying to think like a, a modern Western theologian and trying to think like a modern Western uh, biblical studies person, I missed, I didn't learn how to see what was there. I learned that from Indigenous people. And so, yes, those tools of study and things for biblical studies and theology. They're helpful and I, they're useful, but they embracing who I was as an indigenous person, that gave me these creative life-giving lenses that together breathe new life into what was going on. And I think that's where maybe everybody's, you need to be who you are and, 
and see those things. That's, you can't, you can't see things the way other people see them. Uh, like you can't, no, that doesn't make sense. Because I think the task of a man is to learn how a woman sees the world. Like that's really what maturity is all about because mm. we're kind of very stilted as men. We only see things a certain way. A Navajo person told me that once that the mm. task of a man is to see the world the way that his mom sees the world. We always need other people to help us see. And that's to me, Christian faith. This is about a big picture to see the world, but you still have to see it through indigenous eyes. And I just try to bring these things to hold them together. I don't try to force them together. I just try to hold them together because this space in the middle, that's collaboration. That's collaboration. And that's where the cool stuff happens, the creativity. Mm. And uh, mm. talking to my aunt, some of my elders, I realized that Jesus was here long before the Europeans came here. We didn't always know Jesus by that name, but when we heard the gospel and we heard people praying, we knew that these people, we could be in relationship with them because we're all praying to the same creator. Mm. How could we not be able, how could we not be in unity? Like, how could we not find enough commonality to be together for we were all people who prayed? Again, this is what this recorded by the elders saw. Because usually priests and things came with the people who were making treaty. And they prayed. And they even took Sundays off to focus on their ceremonies, their Christian mm -hmm. ceremonies. Indigenous people saw that and they thought, we could be in relationship with these people for there are people who pray. So that's kind of, those are some of the things I think about. That makes me so like encouraged and excited about like opportunity to learn um, and just what vibrant faith that would produce. I think like thinking about our church, um, if we could lean into some of our, the, the people who go to our church, some of our brothers and sisters lean on their insight and their experience. It just makes me really excited. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, we're just so grateful, Ray. Like, thanks a lot for your time, your wisdom. Hey, you're welcome. Thank you for listening. And a special thanks to Ray Aldred for bringing his personal reflections to the Re podcast. Thank you to our silent sponsor and our very supportive church community, New Heights Church, and of course, young Obi Elford, my son, for putting together the music that backs our voices. Join us again in two weeks when the Re podcast is back, but this time with reflections from people in the New Heights community. This has been episode three of the Re podcast, the prefix that hopes for more than we had before. <laughs>